Life is busy, especially if you've got a very important podcast to host. If you want fewer trips to the grocery store and a freezer full of meat, get ButcherBox. They've got incredible deals on high-quality meat and seafood, and it's delivered right to your door. You can customise your ButcherBox plan, and they'll throw in recipes, tips, guides, and hacks. ButcherBox meat is humanely raised. There are no antibiotics or added hormones, so you can choose from grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood. And shipping is 100% free. Sign up at butcherbox.com underworld and use the code underworld to get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. That's butcherbox.com underworld and the code underworld to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Castor de Andrade might just be the most powerful mobster you've never heard of. In the 1980s and 90s, the Mafia boss is one of Brazil's most famous people. With an electric smile and a rotating wardrobe of brightly coloured silk shirts that would make your average TV game show host proud. He has a nickname too, the King of Carnival. And that's just not because of his wild style. Castro is one of the guys who made Brazil's carnival into the world-renowned attraction it is today. A melee of half-naked, pulsating and gyrating women dancing through the streets of Rio and other Brazilian cities in the days leading up to the Christian period of Lent. Castro's very own samba school wins carnival championship after championship. It might sound weird that a dance competition is such a massive deal, but in Brazil, that is huge. Castor cozies up to power, and he's regularly seen with the nation's elite actors, sports stars, business leaders, and politicians. But what really makes Castor mighty is illegal gambling. He runs an underground lottery called Jogo do Bichu that is so popular that in the 80s, it's estimated to bring in over a billion dollars each year. At his core then, Castor is a bookie, a money launderer and a gangster. His criminal network doesn't just move cash, but weapons and drugs. And his underworld influence spreads far beyond the Amazon, moving money for organisations including the Cali Cartel in Colombia and Sicily's Cosa Nostra. Castor will stand accused of murdering, quote, inconvenient figures in Brazilian society. Some say he's responsible for the deaths of over 50 rivals, but today's show isn't just about Castor de Andrade or his empire. It's about his relationship with another empire, one whose influence has permeated every corner of the planet. FIFA, the Federación Internacional de Football Association. Yes, FIFA. Those are the guys who run the Soccer World Cup. In the 1980s, FIFA's boss is a Brazilian trained lawyer named Joao Havelange. And when prosecutors are closing on Castor in 1987, who does Castor turn to for help? Yes, Avalanche, an immensely powerful and deeply corrupt man. FIFA's second longest serving president, overseeing his sport's rise to world domination, and of course, mega riches. Castor and Avalanche will lay the foundations for an organization that's been mired in court cases and accusations of high crime ever since. Ahead of this year's controversial World Cup, in the tiny, ultra-rich Gulf state of Qatar, 
the two men's relationship has come into even sharper criminal context. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast. Yeah, guys, we're back, or rather, I'm back. Uh, Danny Gold will be with us again next week, but my name is Sean Williams. I'm a journalist in Berlin, and we are kicking off what I guess you could call our third season, maybe, uh, with a look under the murky hood of world soccer, which I'm going to call football from now on, because that's its name. And I think as this show is released, we've got bonus stuff back after the summer break, interviews on Afghan drugs, a high-profile extortion case in Italy, Uh, And in a week, I'm actually off to Nepal myself, which is pretty nuts, and you'll be getting plenty of sweet content from my trip there. I do nothing if not create content. Though, today, I'm joined by Connor Powell, a podcast host and TV reporter who's covered conflicts all over the world from Kabul to Gaza and many places in between. Connor's latest show, Lords of Soccer, How FIFA Stole the Beautiful Game, ah, damn, I said I'd call it football, Uh, It digs into the many, many criminal shenanigans that have plagued the world's most popular sport for years, including, by the way, New York's very own Chuck Blazer, a self-described, quote, fat crook from Queens who enjoyed booking two hotel suites at once, and he liked carrying around a parrot called Max on his shoulder, uh, if that's not enough for a, a villain. So welcome to the show, Connor. I'm chuffed to have you on here. And before we go any further, you're talking about FIFA, the guys who run the World Cup, basically the whole thing right and whose logo is on all the video games too on the video games uh the federation international de football association and i can't say that smugly enough for how smug they are (laughs) these are the guys who run global soccer they run the world cup they oversee the uefa championships coma ball just everything other than the sort of domestic leagues that are obviously massively popular but even to extent FIFA oversees them as well, but they oversee the World Cup, the Women's World Cup, the Junior World Cup, you know, just really, these are the guys that hold or pretend to hold global football soccer Mm -hmm. together. You know, we called our podcast the Lords of Soccer because one, I'm an American and and unfortunately we call it soccer here, Um, (laughs) but these guys are treated like lords. They're treated like kings and presidents and prime ministers. They fly around the world on private jets. They spend hundreds of thousands of dollars each year on hotel on hotels, fine dining, booze, strippers, and other crazy things. You mentioned Chuck Blazer. He was one of the biggest crooks in FIFA, but he used to spend roughly $24,000 a month of FIFA's money on two Trump Tower apartments. One of them was just for his cats, who the reason Blazer got an apartment in Trump Tower just for them is because they peed everywhere. And instead of getting rid of them, he had the extra money just to get them a Trump Tower apartment to go along with his own. And the 25-member executive council that really has run FIFA, um, you know, it's probably one of the smallest, most powerful, exclusive clubs in the world. They are notoriously corrupt. In 2015, the FBI raided one of their favorite hotels in Zurich, Switzerland, and arrested dozens of FIFA officials and sports marketing executives. And to this day, you know, we're, we're about seven years past the original raid. More than 50 people connected to FIFA have been charged with crimes ranging from money laundering to bribery to vote rigging to racketeering. Hundreds of millions of dollars have gone missing from FIFA's coffers in the last 30 years, mostly into people connected to global football. Uh, It's gone right into their pockets. And this entire system of corruption was set up by Zhao Havelange, 
who is the dear friend of Castor de Andrade. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> don't pull any punches there. It sounds like FIFA is a pretty corrupt and decrepit organization. So it's like huge, right? The World Cup is essentially the biggest sporting event in the world, I think, viewing figures by, by some distance, right? And there are 211 member nations, which makes it bigger than the UN. Can you give us an idea of like sort of how much cash these guys are bringing in as well? Yeah, so FIFA does their accounting uh, in four-year blocks, essentially from one World Cup to another. And it's estimated that this World Cup sort of run from 2019 to 2022 will bring in about $6 billion um, in revenue. Now, oh. most of that's profit. They don't really pay much to hold the World Cup because the host countries are pretty much on the hook for funding everything. So they have to build their own stadiums, they have to build their own infrastructure. Uh, FIFA gets TV partners to essentially broadcast the games. And so most of that money goes straight into FIFA's coffers. Um, and technically, they're a nonprofit, but they are anything but profitable. I mean, at any given point, they have five to $6 billion in their bank accounts at any given point. And it's just money that goes, in theory, back into the game around the world. But for the most part, up until particularly recently, it just went into the pockets of these guys who ran FIFA, ran, went into the pockets of their friends, went into the pockets of their licensing partners, um, You know, whether it's TV or video games or apparel. And they used to just spread this money around pretty much to whoever. So this is a massive organization with a ton of money. And uh, yeah, the, the World Cup is the single largest sporting event in the world. And ironically... This is the summer we should have been watching the World Cup, but we're going to watch it in November <laughs> because FIFA was so corrupt that they gave it to a small, tiny country with no sports infrastructure, no s soccer or football pedigree. And they've had to move the tournament from the summer, as it's always been, to the November, December period because it was going to be so hot they can't play a game safely in the summer that they've had to move it to the fall. Yeah, and not to speak of the million, uh, the, the many migrants who've lost their lives trying to build these crazy stadiums in the middle of the Gulf as well. I actually was living in the Gulf when they announced that Qatar was going to get the World Cup. A friend of mine was a sports journalist and went to one of the P uh, press events and they, they were saying at the time, I think their official line was that they were going to aircon all of the stadiums or something insane. Um, but leave the roofs open, which makes perfect sense. So we asked them, what happens if the wind blows and uh, the guy in charge just stopped the stopped the press conference? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they were kind of pulling ideas out of their backside at the time. And I don't think it's a lot has changed. But we're going to go into the Qatar World Cup uh, a bit further down the line this year when, uh, when, when we're staring down the barrel of it. But FIFA itself, you go into a, a bit of the history in your show. You kind of run up to the raids that you've mentioned uh, and some of these colourful characters that have been in the press quite a bit of late uh, like Chuck Blazer. First of all do you want to get into a little bit of the foundation of it and how it had always kind of been this murky colonialist outfit um, and by the way make sure like in the show you puncture England's World Cup legend warrior. <laughs> we love a bit of that in the UK. I will, I will. <laughs> yeah I mean we always say that FIFA didn't start out corrupt it just started out racist. You look at sort of the history of FIFA. It was founded in 1904 in Paris and it was basically a European a group. They had a couple of South American countries in the early years as well, but it was really just sort of a European soccer group that decided that they needed to codify the rules of the sport because all over the world they were being played differently. Sometimes in the first half of a game, you might have one set of rules in the second, and then 
countries wanted to start playing each other. So these guys basically created FIFA. And nothing wrong with that. Um, but the, the early creators of FIFA, the early founders of FIFA, were almost all sort of European colonialists. These are people who believed in sort of the superiority of Europe, the superiority of white Christianity, and really looked down on anything that wasn't a European, Christian, white sort of culture and history. You know, the 1966 World Cup where England wins it on their home soil is always held up as sort of the golden years of, of FIFA before corporate sponsorship and the big money poured in. But one of the things that's really interesting about that 1966 World Cup is the entire African continent pulls out of the World Cup. They don't compete. And this is all because essentially FIFA's president at the time, a guy named Sir Stanley Rouse, who was a Brit and was a total Victorian sort of colonialist, pretty racist to some extent, uh, basically, they were pissed off. Uh, the, uh, the Africans were pissed off that there were no automatic qualifiers for African uh, sides. All of the automatic qualifiers were for European or South American teams. And they they were also really angry about the way Rouse treated and supported South Africa's apartheid government and their their football soccer team. And so you have a World Cup in 1966 that England holds up as like their most glorious moment in the sport. And an entire continent didn't participate in that World Cup. And one of the things people can say, oh, it was just Africa. It's just after World War II. You know, there's about 30 or so African countries that would have competed. And the top goal scorer Mm -hmm. in the 1966 World Cup was actually um, an African player from Mozambique who actually played for Portugal uh, because Shocker Portugal still had Mozambique as part of their colonial empire. Um, And so you still... Africa had a... had a strong soccer or football tradition at that time, and yet they weren't even part of this World Cup that Af- that uh, you know England holds up as sort of the, their glorious golden years moment. Right? Yeah. Um. Eusebio, wonderful player. So I guess we get to the the, the criminal stuff. What everyone's here for? Give us an idea of who Joao Havelange is and how, just how dodgy a, a character he was as well. He was dodgy. And he was dodgy from early from from a young age. The first thing you need to know about him is that his father was an international arms dealer who moved weapons around the world, and <laughs> Joao Havelange idolized his father. Uh, you know. He idolized the success that his father had, but more importantly, the the friends, the powerful friends that he was able to make along the way. And Havelange was a, a, a serious athlete in his own right. He was an Olympic swimmer. He played a water polo as well, and he turned businessman. And before being elected as FIFA's seventh president, Havelange ran the Brazilian Sports Federation. And when he was elected FIFA president in 1974, defeating Sir Stanley Rouse, he left the Brazilian Sports Federation with a gaping financial hole. About $7 million were missing, which, you know, in the 1970s is a fairly large number. And the Brazilian military junta that ran the country, they were furious when they found out, you know, when he leaves to go to Zurich. But Havelange escaped prosecution. He kind of always knew whose hands to grease. And since he was now the head of FIFA, he was in a position to grease a lot of hands on the Brazilian elites, uh, sort of a Brazilian elite culture. And so the junta basically lets this missing money slide. And this is something that you see with Havelange and Kasser as well, that they both understood that in the military dictatorship in the 1970s, that paying off the right guys was a really important thing. Making friends with the guys in power was something that was really important. And you see this as we, we're going to go talking about both of these guys today. Both Havelange and Kasser really understood that you know paying their guys who are in power 
is a really important thing for your own personal success and safety. Right. And, and, and Havalange's kind of election as the chief of FIFA was seen as a bit of a, a sort of power movement, right? From, from Europe to South America and unofficially from kind of white centers of power to, to, um, uh, black and people of color, uh, in the, in the global South, which, it's kind of you know, like you said, it was pretty much a European old boys club um, yeah. before yeah. that. Even so, it doesn't really represent anything particularly democratic or liberal about the the organisation itself, right? He's he's just as much a part of the wheeler dealers sort of in crowd um, as it as it was before. Um, and and to Casta, this uh, this this criminal kind of leader, how did he build his own empire in Brazil? So Castor was born into a world of crime um, in outside of Rio de Janeiro in, in 1926. His grandmother ran one of Brazil's many illegal lottery networks. And, and in Brazil, they have these sort of lottery networks and, um, you know, each neighborhood would have one. And they, a lot of money ran through these things and everybody would play them. And Castor began working essentially in the family business from a pretty young age, you know, with his fathers and uh, his father and his uncle, uh, uncles as well. And, you know, Castor was clever. Um, he played a large role in consolidating the various smaller numbers games, these lotteries. And some of it was muscle, some of it was just sort of like growing the business as well. Um, so he sort of, it's the, the, the family business is passed down from the grandmother to the sort of his father and uncles. And then he sort of takes control of it. And by the time the Brazilian general seized control in 1964 of Brazil, Castor had established himself as one of the most powerful mobsters in the country. The generals were really corrupt themselves. And they understood that Castor had his own sort of power structure in the country. And they literally told the police, leave Castor alone. We don't want any problems with him. And he has a free hand from this point onward to really violently eliminate any of his rivals. He's taking over more and more of this uh, local lottery game by force. And by the 1970s, the streets of Rio are literally echoing with roars of motorcycle couriers collecting cash on behalf of uh, Castor and these betting slips. And, you know, soon he's expanded into video games, um, these slot machines. He starts moving guns for other criminal organizations. And Brazil's generals love him. He pays all the right people and he hosts their families at Carnival, which you mentioned that he was had this big samba school. And the money's literally pouring in in the 70s and early 80s. And he's one of Brazil's most famous people. I mean, he's out in the public and everyone knows he's a criminal and a mobster. And, you know, we think about people like uh, Capone um, as sort of being public fixture, figures. But like, but Capone wasn't hanging out with politicians and, and parties in New York and in Washington, D.C. But Castor really was. Yeah, it's, 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 the, uh, it's, your, it's your favorite old gangster progression of numbers games to videos video games carnival uh, and gun running yeah <laughs> pretty crazy uh, career path but yeah i mean y- you mentioned at the top of the show that castor owned one of rio's top so- soccer teams um was that also a part of this criminal enterprise so you know americans we always like to joke because every time anyone talks about football or soccer you know somebody in an interview says that like Soccer is Brazil's true religion or, you know, the most powerful religion in the world is actually football. You know, we see we hear these sort of quips all the time. And yeah. and in Brazil, it's actually really, really true. Brazil, football, soccer is so important. Um, you know, they've won five World Cups. They've always been one of the top teams in the world. And it's really an addiction there. It, it, it 
dominates all aspects of Brazilian society. You know, for most Americans or people around the world, everybody knows Pele. He's probably the most famous legendary soccer player in the last uh, 40 to 50 years. Um, yeah, they also have Ronaldinho and, and Neymar and stuff like that. But like Pele is one of the most famous guys. Um, and he's famous even in America where, you know, there is no football presence in the sort of 50s, 60s, and 70s. Still, still, still going strong and still yeah. um, probably the world's foremost uh, seller of dick pills as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, like, so this is insanely huge in Brazil. Um, and how and when did he get into it? Yeah, so he, he was always a fan of Bangu Atletico, which is the team that he supported. And... I've, it, it's a little bit confusing because at times he's sort of on the advisory council and other times he's listed as an owner. It, and I think that's just part of the shady world of football in Brazil um, and also just football in general is that whether how much he was an owner at one point and how much he was uh, the sort of president in the 60s, 70s, 80s, it's all a little murky. But the most important thing is he ran the club for a lot of years, this Bangu Atletico Um and he was instantly welcomed into high society because he was famous. He ran the Samba school, but really because he controlled this, this team. Um, and, you know, as he's violently expanding his illegal lottery game, knocking off rivals, making money for all sorts of dodgy people, he's also, you know, a high-profile sports owner, a sports uh, sort of prominent person in a country that soccer, football is the most important thing. So... It all sort of ties, and it's not a direct line, but he's you know he's expanding his empire as he's also rising through the ranks of um, Brazil football as well. And and that's presumably how Casta becomes acquainted with Havelange. Yeah, they're both massively ambitious and dodgy, and they become quick friends. <laughs> Havelange runs the Brazil Sports Federation at first, and then he's off to FIFA. And you know, there's. There's an old saying that Havelange liked to joke that when he took over FIFA in 1974, that he would always say that FIFA only had about $25 in the bank account. And when he left, they had way more than $25. And he was right. Like, it had billions of dollars when he left FIFA. And, you know, we often talk about in Lords of Soccer podcast that Havelange helped create this ubiquitous sports marketing model where there's corporate sponsorship and millions of dollars are um, shelled out to put logos all over the signs and stuff. And, and Havelange is the guy who created this long before the IOC. He's also the guy who's paying bribes to anyone um, or to anyone to help grow FIFA's revenues, particularly his friends. And so Castor and Havelange become close, close friends. There's a famous photo of uh, Castor's daughter getting married. And right next at the head table to Castor and his daughter is Jao Havelange and another FIFA crook named Ricardo Teixeira, who actually happened to be Havelange's son-in-law. And Teixeira is one of the many guys who gets arrested uh, in 2015 as well. Uh, and so, I mean, at this table, at this wedding, you've got two of the biggest crooks in, in global sports sitting next to this Brazilian mobster and his daughter. And that's how tight these families were. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty crazy how closely packed the power is around this as well. And Cast himself, I mean, he's connected to and, like we said, accused of all kinds of sort of crazy violent crimes. Um, 
Is Havalange then just a, just a financial white-collar criminal in, in comparison? I mean, yes and no. Havalange was primarily a white-collar crook. I mean, stealing, bribing, embezzling money, financial sort of uh, irregularities. I mean, that was what his core was. He, he used to literally buy thousands of dollars worth of gold in Zurich when he was in FIFA. And he would bring these suitcases back to Brazil. And he would always be waved through customs because he traveled <laughs> on a diplomatic passport. And I can't find anybody who can explain to me why the Brazilian head of FIFA had a diplomatic passport. But the only thing I can think of is, is that's how important Havelange was to the Brazilian government, that they gave him a diplomatic passport. Um, and wow. he was mostly involved in these white-collar crimes. But one of the things we dig into in the Lords of Soccer podcast is that Havelange was really tight with other military dictators in South America, particularly Argentina's. And the 1978 World Cup, which FIFA hosts and holds in... Um, in uh, Argentina is is run by one of the most ruthless and violent military regimes who were disappearing tens of thousands of people. They were throwing dissidents out of airplanes in the ocean, and those bodies were wa- washing up on neighboring countries like shorelines and beaches. And the military junta, like they were also arresting pregnant women, taking their babies out, and then giving them to regime supporters as well to be raised. So the regime was really, really a violent, brutal regime, and Havelands loved them. In the 1978 World Cup, right before it, human rights groups were calling on FIFA to move the World Cup to some other country. And the Argentinian dictatorship basically started uh, using this slogan saying, we are human and we are right, mocking the entire human rights movement. And so, like, there isn't direct blood on Havelange's hands where he was the guy who was killing people or ordering hits and stuff like that. But he was involved and oversaw a lot of dodgy, dodgy FIFA deals with really bloodthirsty, violent criminals and dictators. So, like, I I don't think it's fair to just say he was only a white-collar criminal. FIFA has turned a blind eye to a lot of brutal dictators in governments like Russia in 2018 and obviously what's happening now in Qatar. But... Havelange was kind of the first guy to say, all right, we don't care about any of this stuff. We're just going to focus on making money. Don't, don't worry about who's getting killed in the process. Yeah, that's the real, that's the real side of the beautiful game. And, and actually, we've gone into some of Argentina's longstanding connections between us kind of ultras fans and dictatorships yep. and violence and, and the underworld in that country. Really, really fascinating ties, which are still going on in force. So at this point, we've got these two dodgy Brazilian guys, both of whom are crooked in their own right. But you mentioned that when Casta de Andrade is in trouble... He turns to Havelange. Now, why is that? Yeah, this is one of the things I, I found so interesting about the episode that we did on Havelange uh, for the Lords of Soccer podcast, because, you know, we sort of lay out he's dodgy, he's a criminal, he oversaw this entire thing. But in the 1980s, Brazil's military dictatorship is collapsing, and it's really corrupt. The economy is in a mess, um, and it's also empowered criminals like Castor. Democracy gets fully restored in 1985, and this is bad news for mobsters like Castor, Prosecutors are starting to go after him and a lot of these other mobsters. And Castor's scared. All the bribes he's paying to local police officers and politicians are becoming more and more just useless. And so he turns to Havelange, who at this point is one of the most powerful men in the world. He's traveling around on a diplomatic passport. FIFA is just, it's the biggest thing in the world at this point. Um, And Castor asks Havelange for a personal letter of recommendation. It seems odd. Um, it's kind of quaint, maybe even ridiculous. But essentially, the letter said, Castor de Andrade is a family man. He loves sports. He's a really good guy. And most importantly, the letter says, Castor is my friend. 
And the gist of the letter was, I'm really fucking important. Leave my friend alone or I'm going to come after you. And it was signed by Zhao Havelange, president of FIFA. So imagine if you're a local cop, right? Or um, uh, a city police officer or something like that. And you go to arrest Castor or a prosecutor and you go to arrest Castor and he hands you this letter. In a football mad country like Brazil, you might think really hard about what you're about to do because, man, the, the president of FIFA is sticking his neck out. You're just going to leave Castor alone. And this, it really does buy Castor a bunch of years. I mean, he he's sort of in the crosshair of prosecutors, but he, it, it's several years before, as they're arresting all these other mobsters in the country, before Castor gets any real trouble. And so this letter did help. And, you know, it's it's sort of this amazing thing where, uh, Castor is this wanted man, and yet he's untouched. Yeah, it's it's completely crazy. I can't wait for us to get advertising uh, offers flooding in from Adidas and Nike and Budweiser after this show. <laughs> <laughs> does this does this like sort of ballsy letter then? Does that does it actually work for a short period of time? So for you know, and we don't know how many times he used it and who he whipped it out to and things like that. But like it, for a short period of time, for a couple years, while other mobsters are in the crosshairs and getting arrested. He's out free. But by 1993, he is finally charged and he gets convicted. And when police raided his house, they find evidence of payments to former Brazilian presidents, to multiple mayors of Rio, to judges, to congressmen, to police commissioners, to military officers. I mean, he was bribing hundreds of people. They also found among this collection of payments and and books, a letter from Havelange to Castor and also a bunch of receipts basically showing that Castor was giving FIFA's president a bunch of free stuff. You know, not big stuff. I mean, not not huge amounts of money, but stuff that was embarrassing to Havelange and should have been embarrassing to FIFA and other Brazilian sort of uh, elite members of society. Yeah, that's... Uh, well, that seems like it would have a pretty big effect, but actually what impact did that revelation have on Havelange and FIFA? So at this point in the 1980s, early 90s, FIFA is functioning like a mob organization. Um, and, and those aren't my words. That's what Jim Comey, the former head of the FBI, and the Attorney General uh, Loretta Lynch said in 2015 when they arrested a dozen of FIFA executives. I mean, by all definitions, FIFA was operating like a mob criminal enterprise um, by the mid-80s, early 90s. And... FIFA under Havelange is involved in these bribery schemes, vote rigging, racketeering, fraud, and lots of other criminal activities. But by 1994, he's been around for 20 years, and, and there is this sort of dodgy stink to FIFA at this point. It's not everyone doesn't know it, but, but people have issues. And there is some talk about, like, when is Havelange going to step down? We need somebody new. And there's different efforts to sort of oust Havelange. Um, and so when this goes public, some of Havelange's critics in Europe saw this as an opportunity to finally get rid of the old man after 20 years. And what does he do? When the news breaks that he's been involved with a mobster and a gangster, and there's payments to him, he announces that the next World Cup will be expanded, meaning that more countries will be heading into the world's ultimate sporting event. And this gets Havelange reelected, keeps him out of any hot water. There's no real investigation into what's going on. Uh, within FIFA, and he he survives for basically another four more years. And in 1998, after rigging the FIFA presidential election for his right-hand man, Sepp Blatter, Havelange finally steps down. Um, 
And bladder only takes the corruption that Havelange created and just sort of supercharges it. But he essentially gets out in 1994 when this letter becomes public of any trouble by bribing the countries that make up FIFA um, by saying even more of you are going to be able to participate in this World Cup tournament every four years. Yeah, it doesn't really get a lot better with Sepp Blatter. Um, as your show goes into with the raids uh, in 2015 and kind of how, I mean, the FBI um, carries out these these raids and then it kind of blows blows the whole organization apart. I mean, why actually, why was it the F, down to the FBI to, to kind of get on top of this? Why wasn't, why weren't Europeans or anyone else in the world really um, knocking on FIFA's door? So that's one of the most interesting things. There's a technical uh, answer to that question and then there's a sort of a cultural answer. And the, the technical question uh, an answer is this, that FIFA was sending money uh, in the forms of uh, sometimes cash payments and envelopes, but often just wire transfers. And after 9-11, all of these wire transfers were going through U.S. banks. And after 9-11, that basically meant that U.S. Uh, financial regulators, the FBI, the Department of Justice had jurisdictions on any payment around the world that was a wire transfer, essentially went through Chase or City in New York. And so all of a sudden, the U.S. government has a technical oversight. Now, the other question is, is why was it the U.S. that went after FIFA when other countries knew about the corruption? And it's cultural. And that's because America was the only country where FIFA's name didn't mean anything, right? In any other country, if if you threaten FIFA, a, th- a FIFA executive who is corrupt, you might not get TV rights. You might not, uh, your team might not see, um, they might be penalized in the process for making the World Cup. And really, it's only America. You might also say Canada as well, where soccer just isn't a big enough deal that a Mm. president, a governor, a politician really gave two shits about FIFA. And so they weren't able to sort of scare anybody and saying, hey, listen, if you come after us, we're going to screw your national team and hurt your chances of being in the World Cup or hurt your chances of winning the World Cup. And and they really did threaten people for a lot of years anytime some prosecutor in another country would even sniff around FIFA. And so the U.S. had the technical capacity to go after FIFA, but they also had the sort of cultural ignorance and, you know, they didn't, there was no love affair with FIFA or soccer uh, at all. I mean, to the point, obviously, we're, you know, we're still calling it by the, ran- or the wrong name of the sport. So... You know, just culturally, America was, they didn't give a shit. <laughs> I can't wait for the Albanian cops to bring down corruption in the NFL. Yeah, then. exactly. That'll be a great news story. And and so your your show gets into a lot of these, I mean, just insanely open levels of corruption that were going on um, during that time within FIFA. But what about... Caster, what actually happens to him? What? How, did, how does he uh, pan out? How does his story pan yeah, out? Yeah, so he gets charged in 1993. In 1994, along with a large group of other mobsters, he, he goes to prison. He gets convicted. But it's a scene out of the movie Goodfellas. Caster's prison is described as a five-star hotel with refrigerators, CD players, TVs, air conditioners. Uh, the mobsters even paid for renovations to their prison uh, wing, installing new floors and new bathrooms. So, I mean, they're, they're doing okay. He has some heart issues, and at some point he's released, and he actually dies in his own home, in his own bed in 1997 after suffering a heart attack. 
but he's under house arrest and he's really living a pretty decent life and he's still kind of running his criminal enterprise. So yeah, he did a few years in a very comfy prison, but for the most part, he went unpunished. Okay, crime pays, kids. Uh, and <laughs> and so this Jogo Debisho, then I, I know I'm going to butcher the the name of it, but is this sort of informal numbers game or lottery? Is that still carrying on across Brazil? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's still a big, powerful game. I'm not sure how crooked it is in comparison to what it was. I think there's some more regulations. I think there is some attention paid to it. It's not totally underground at this point. Uh, but it's still a really big game. I mean, it, it's kind of like, you know, the local lottery, but it's not really run by the government. Okay. And yeah, I just looked up the the uh, how Bangu are doing these days, uh, Caster's old team, and it seems they're in the fourth division of Brazilian football. So they haven't been able to <laughs> shake off his bad name. Um, so, yeah, your show goes into all of this in, in great detail. I mean, how did you first kind of get onto this subject? Are you are you a big fan of the sport or what, what kind of pr- pushed you into yeah, it? Yeah, I'm a huge sports fan. I've watched the World Cup every year since 1990 um, when we had to watch it in the United States in Spanish um, on, the, on one of the Mexican channels. Um, and so I've always followed the World Cup. I can't say that I follow like the leagues week in and week out. Um, but, I, you know, I have a general sense of who the good teams are and things like that. Um, so I've always been uh, somebody who's followed the World Cup. But what really... In 2020, it's the middle of the pandemic, and I had just finished another podcast that was a political history podcast called uh, Long Shots. And it was all about presidential losers who changed the world, people like Pat Buchanan or Ross Perot. And I was sitting there on my couch, um, you know, quarantining, and my partner um, texted me and he said, have you seen this? And it was an article about another round of arrests um, that the U.S. Department of Justice had launched against FIFA people. And in this round in, in 2020, five years after the original arrest um, in, in Zurich, they arrested a guy um, named Hernan Lopez, who had been a Fox Sports executive and now was running, uh, running Wondery, which was one of the largest podcast platforms in the world. <laughs> and Hernan was a really big deal in American sports, but also in podcasting. Um, and yeah. my partner and I just said, are you kidding me? There's st- FIFA is still getting... Uh, dinged and arrested uh, five years after the fact. And one of them is a huge um, sports guy who worked for uh, Rupert Murdoch and is running a podcasting company. So we immediately said, okay, there's a story here. And I just started Googling FIFA corruption. And you know, if you go down that rabbit hole, um, it, it, there's just endless amounts of stories about FIFA corruption. And within a few days, I had put together a pitch deck of, you know, multiple episodes <laughs> of FIFA corruption. And that's kind of where it went. And we were, yeah, we, we sort of produced it um, and did it for iHeart largely because in America, everyone knows FIFA's corrupt, but nobody actually knows the stories. We just don't follow it very closely. And so, you know, here in the US, it's sort of untapped material. And, and, and even in, around the world, People know FIFA's corrupt, but not everyone knows the stories of these guys. It's actually incredible once you dig into the individual tales and the raids and all this kind of stuff, how unbelievably brazen all of these crimes have been carried out. Uh, and you mentioned Jack Warner, um, then president of CONCACAF in North and Central America. And he was basically just sitting guys down in a room and saying, take this bribe or, or, or else, right? I mean, it's not particularly... Subtle stuff. Yeah, so Chuck Blazer was the number two at CONCACAF, and Jack Warner was the number one. And together, they were 
easily the most sort of dynamic duo of crooks that were in the FIFA <laughs> sort of family. But there's an actual video of Jack Warner in a room in, I think it's Port of Spain, in Trinidad and Tobago, with about 25 Caribbean soccer officials handing out envelopes of $40,000. And he's asking them to vote for Mohammed bin uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, no, it's it's the uh, Qatari guy, not Mohammed bin Salman, but uh, but for oh, the God, Qatari yeah. uh, sort of candidate to take on Sepp Blatter. And he's handing out this money, and he literally says, "Listen, if you guys have a conscience, you know, go open a church. Like this is we are not in the conscience <laughs> business, and like we are not in the do the right thing. We are in the making money. And here's your money. And he says to him, if you don't want to take the money, I'll take it back.'" And you can go open your church. And, and then he ends it with like by saying, my friends. And I mean, he was totally brazen, but <laughs> he had Sepp Blatter's total support in everything he was doing up until that moment when he was trying to basically cross Sepp Blatter in, in 2011. So yeah, you, uh, you had these brazen briberies. Um, you also had like the way that South Africa got the 2014 World Cup was supposed to have been sort of Nelson Mandela going around the world, uh, talking to people, using his charisma. And what it turned out, we, we found out later, was that South Africa was just paying bribes to everybody. And they were sending these bribes through wire transfers around the world. And some of it ended up in Jack Warner's pocket. And, you know, it's just there was this sort of feel-good moment that Nelson Mandela was helping South Africa get this World Cup, and the entire thing was a fraud. It was just all paid bribes to soccer officials around the world. Before we wrap up, I'm going to put you on the spot then, given all that's going on with Qatar. Are you going to watch it? Are you going to boycott it? What's, what are you going to do personally? Yes, I'm going to watch it. I mean, I watch corrupt sports all the time. <laughs> I, like, I love the NFL. I love Major League Baseball. I mean, I you know, sports are corrupt. Um, I, don't, I don't have any belief that you know these are somehow a removal like it gets us away from reality no, no sports are a reflection of society and i'm going to watch the world cup and it but it is this world cup is particularly sad because of the corruption that went into it but also the number of people that have died building the infrastructure you mentioned earlier about qatar got the world cup promising to build 12 new stadiums they're the only country that's ever had to build 12 new stadiums and they're actually not even going to build 12 new stadiums they're just going to build uh, eight new stadiums uh, that are mildly air conditioning um, because they had no infrastructure. I mean, it's only a country of like a million people. There, there's no reason that a country like Qatar should host any type of international sporting event except for the guys who voted in 2010 on the FIFA executive committee. They got paid a ton of money. And interestingly, the only guy who didn't get bribed that we know of, like for a fact who said he didn't get bribed, was Chuck Blazer. And that's because uh, the U.S. was also competing against Qatar to host the 2022 World Cup. <laughs> and the Qataris essentially didn't think Blazer would have taken the money. And he always joked, this is long after he got in trouble and was sort of, do, you know, talking to reporters. He was always a little sort of, you know, saddened by the fact that the Qataris hadn't offered him the money. He never said he would take it, but like he sort of left it out there like, I might have considered voting for Qatar. And that's how corrupt these guys were. Wow. Good old Chuck. Uh, yeah, if you want to do any follow-up, guys, check out pictures of Chuck Blazer and, and some of his background because it's pretty pretty unreal. But um, yeah, I mean, guys, you can listen to Connor's uh, show, Lords of Soccer, How FIFA Stole the Beautiful Game. Get it wherever you get your podcast, wherever that may be. Uh, I've just said soccer again, so I'm going to I'm gonna win this. America, but, uh, look, look at what we're doing to the sport. Uh, it's just cultural appropriation all <laughs> over the place. 
Connor, cheers for joining us. Uh, it's been an absolute blast. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting time for world football uh, and not particularly a good one. <laughs> As we've just been going through, um, gangsterism runs all the way through the sport. Yeah.